And this week we've got Josh Lovell speaking, who is a counsellor in Hertfordshire and um, an activist in the UCU, amongst other things, many other things, apparently. Um, he's going to speak for, he's going to try and do it in 25 minutes about council cuts and what we need to be doing about it. Why Why would we discuss local, uh, local government cuts? Um, you know, like anything, there's lessons to learn. It's important uh, why we need to, you know, how, how we're going to rebuild broadly. But, you know, quite importantly, local government employs over 2 million people. Uh, Unison claim over 600,000 local government members. There's 50,000 FBU members, many of whom are employed by councils. Um, so there's potentially a huge avenue for struggle. Um, so I want to give this talk in like four parts. Um, that is, in, in, in brief, how to win, how to lose, why we, meet, why, why we might keep losing and how we might go about reversing that. So um, as said, I'm not going to pretend to have all the answers, uh, but I wanted to put across some points for discussion and uh, some interesting bits of history that might help us shine, shine a light on how we move forward. Um, so let's start in Derbyshire. So um, for those not familiar, Clay Cross is a small former mining town in northeast Derbyshire. It's got a population of about 10,000 people. It's the birthplace of Dennis Skinner, who was the Bolsover Labour MP for 49 years. And also Arthur Henderson, who was the three times leader of the Labour Party. So despite its size, it features quite prominently in Labour Party history. Although first and foremost, at least in my view, it's this struggle, this battle between an urban district council and the government over rent rises that really is the most significant part of Claycross's history. Um, so what I put up is this picture, which shows one of the many marches through the town. Uh, the banner shows actually the prominent slogan of this struggle, and that's Claycross will not implement the act. But what was this act and, and why, where was all the outcry? What was all the outcry about? So in 72, the Heath-led Tory government introduced this thing called the Housing Finance Act, uh, which became effective in October that year, um, which would lead to rent rises uh, for all council tenants of a pound a week, um, a charge that would have hit the working class in Claycross uh, uh, disproportionately. So rightly, this was denounced by Labour within local parties and then the Labour Party National Conference in 72, where the party actually pledged to campaign with tenants, trades, councils to resist the act. Um, now, at that time, Labour actually had a lot of councillors, more councillors than any, any other party, uh, had more councils than any other party, and certainly enough to build a big national campaign against implementation of the act, you know, and, and also many pledged to, uh, but none quite with the level of Clay Cross. Um, despite the fact that there were rent strikes happening in a large number of other constituencies and that these were coordinated with trades councils, only Clay Cross actually went, went ahead and kept resisting. So what was the difference here? Um, simply put, like they had councillors who, when they said no, they meant no. OK, uh, they were they were proud of their record. Um, they'd insured low rates for their tenants. They had brought in 24-hour wardens, they'd undertaken a major housing rebuilding programme, and they weren't going to let any of that be tarnished if they could prevent it. Uh, so by January 1973, um, literally months after Labour Party National Conference, Clay Cross are left on their own, um, at which point you've got basically 11 councillors who are refusing to implement this act in a town of less than 10,000 who were still refusing to obey the government's orders. 
Um, and of course, the government doesn't like that. Um, all the councillors get surcharged over six grand in total, uh, an amount that goes over a £2,000 um, amount that means auto disqualification for them all. Okay. Uh, one aside here is that no such surcharge exists today. So it's worth bearing in mind for our discussion later. So the councillors fought this. They took the, the government to court. They end up in the High Court in July. Despite that, the decision was upheld and they're all disqualified. But these councillors had tactics, right? They were organised. Um, and 10 of the 11 people that had been chosen to replace them had all agreed to adopt the same policy. They all refused to implement the act as well. So now you're at a point where you've got 21 councillors standing against the government, 11 of which have been disqualified. Um, so what do the government do? They send in a commissioner and they basically say, OK, well, this commissioner is now going to collect all the rates on, on our behalf. But how much did the commissioner collect? Not a penny. OK, they got nothing. And the reason for that is because this wasn't just a struggle between 21 councillors and Heath's government. You know, this wasn't MPs versus councillors in this in this town. It was between an entire community alongside decent representatives and the government. OK, when the commissioner turns up, no office or desk spaces are made, made available for them in the council because the workers refuse to give them that space. When they go to give their press conference on day one, when they arrive, there's jeering, there's demonstrations at the press conference, and this guy just has to leave town. He has to go and live in a hotel six miles outside of the town to actually do any of this work, but he ultimately fails to get anything done for. So the whole time this is happening, the council is setting their own rate, and ultimately in April, the commissioner is recalled. Now, unfortunately, it's not because the government have given up on this fight. Well, um, it, it's because they, did, they, they decided to abolish this council in the meantime. So instead of, you know, force um, um, the, the councillors to go ahead, they realised they wouldn't actually bend the will of the councillors here and they would just have to abolish the council. Um, so uh, the Labour Party formed a minority government a month before that, uh, despite that um, and despite them amending the Housing Act ultimately that year, um, from what I've understood, given the collusion between some Tory MPs and 17 rebel Labour MPs, that government was actually unable to have those surcharges and disqualifications removed. So ultimately, the fight led to 11 councillors being declared bankrupt um, and um, uh, the, the other 10, the second 10, were actually bailed out by hardship funds. But it did result in serious financial penalties for those involved. So what does this dispute tell us? Well, um, I think most importantly, no matter how small some of these council struggles might seem, all out confrontations with the government can be victorious when they're coordinated. All right. You do need decent councillors. You do need a militant labour movement and they both need to be prepared to wage a struggle. Now, the modern conditions that, you know, the bankruptcy risk that Clay Cross councillors ended up with no longer apply. Neither do disqualification rules. Um, but neither do we have a Labour movement that's anywhere near as powerful as the one that was present in Clay Cross. So much as, you know, future Clay Crosses could emerge and, you know, it's, it's our job as socialists to help build struggles like that. Um, as we'll see in the next disputes, local government struggles are often settled by the conditions of the wider class struggle. So um, I put up here a couple of the timelines. Um, I can send these slides out if people are interested, but that's just to try and give a bit of a, a handle on when things are happening. Um, but let's move forward a few years. 
I want to talk about the 80s for a bit. So before I start here, I did want to highlight this workplace bulletin from the time. Um, this is put out by Lambeth NALGO, that's the uh, National Association of Local Government Officers. Um, I, I put this up uh, not because it says anything important, but because actually I think it's a great example of what workers do still in some places, but not to the extent they did then. Things that should be the norm, you know, local government workers putting out bulletins to help organise their colleagues. But I think there's, there's another reason that I put this up, and that's that this exemplifies that these struggles in councils aren't just battles between MPs and councillors. They're, they're class struggles, right, in which the workers on the councils, the workers who work for these councils are absolutely central to any fight. Um, so a little bit before this, Labour win a majority in 74. There's this huge class struggle at this time. You've got the winter of discontent, discontent in 78, 79. Thatcher, however, wins in 79 and goes to war with the Labour movement. Um, the point of saying this is that there's, there's battles against inflation, against low pay, and they're strong and they're widespread. And the Labour movement is confident at this time. Okay, Since 1926, we haven't seen strikes like it. Okay, The, the general strike is, is what I'm referring to there. Um, trade union memberships at its peak. You know, and, and among these activists, you've got you've got people turning towards the Labour Party. They can see this as a new avenue for struggle to actually achieve the ends they seek. Um, you've got revolutionary groups, Marxists entering the Labour Party. And over the period of the late 70s, they are, you know, getting themselves into prominent roles, not only in the party, but also in local government. You know, Ted Knight's elected leader of Labour, uh, leader of Lambeth Council in 1978. And, you know, the councillors are confident. They want to take on the government, you know, and many of them are quite serious about that. You know, what they saw their role as was to do to uh, Thatcher what the 1970s left did to Heath. Um, but there were disagreements on how to do this. So, you know, one crowd of people who were sort of anti-rate rises, pro-cuts. You've got another group of people who are anti-cuts, but, you know, kind of, in favour of rent rises to pay for services. And then you've got some people, I think, a bit more principled, who argue no to both, no cuts, no rate rises. So the pro-cut crowd were largely like the right wing, and I don't really want to spend much time discussing them. Um, but you've got this left-wing pro-rate left who, you know, includes, you know, their arguments include a level of progressive content. You know, they includes people like Ken Livingston at the time, you know, and they were saying, you know, rate rises aren't passed on to those on housing support. They buy us time and, you know, they're not as bad as cuts. True, but they're not actually a great strategy either. And that is demonstrated shortly. So um, you've got councils at the time, and this is the early 80s, passing 30, 40% rate rises, um, which actually, you know, are hitting local businesses, small businesses quite hard, and they make this known to the Tories. That's just not happy about councils making big rate rises to pay for local services. She wants to defeat all of that. So start of 1982, um, however, Thatcher's also doing really badly. Um, they're third, the Tories are third in the opinion polls. So what does anyone who's doing really badly do? They go to war, uh, starts waving the flag, sends troops to Falklands. And by, you know, midway through 1982, Thatcher's gone from a, opinion polling of like 25 points up to like 55, 60. Holds a 30-point lead over Labour. And, you know, couple that with the, the split with the SDP, Within months, Thatcher's got 144 parliamentary majority. Okay, and we're still feeling the effects of that period today. 
But what's important is that within a year, she's able to pass this new thing called the Rates Act. Uh, and this rate cap, those councils that were passing these 30, 40 percent rate rises, meaning that even some of the councils that saw rate rises as an alternative to cuts might actually start to have to consider that. OK, or they'd have to come up with something else. Um, and I guess this is sort of the second part of the of the, of the 1980s that I want to talk about. OK, um, I put this up for now, but I'm going to come back to that, um, you know, because I think it's important to recognise the Tories aren't flying high everywhere. You know, Thatcher isn't, you know, winning in every constituency and at every level. Um, uh, and, and, you know, and the class struggle still has a sting in its tail. Right. The minor strike starts in, in, in March 1984. And um, and also you've got this situation in Liverpool. And Liverpool was never a Labour stronghold in this period, by the way. It only got its first Labour majority in 55. It traded this with the Tories throughout the 60s and 70s. Um, but despite, you know, Labour winning in 74, the Tories in 79, Liverpool Council had no overall control until 1983 when it formed a majority. Um, Liverpool was a, a strong area for the militant tendency who amongst them had elected uh, some councillors. Um, they were sort of less central to the debates in, in the earlier years about rent rises versus cuts, but they'd actually adopted the position of no cuts and no rate rises. And sure enough, as you know, most will know, Liverpool City Council do, do um, you know, go on to fight the government. And you can see here a picture that I believe was taken in 1984. Oh, and it's a Labour Party young socialist uh, holding a ban. It's got 1984 halftime, Liverpool won Jenkins nil. Jenkins, the Tory minister at the time. And their prediction for 1985, and that's that Liverpool are going to beat the government 2-0. Um, I'll leave the conclusion of what actually happens up to you, whether or not you think this bears the truth or not. Um, so over the course of 83, series of by-elections uh, mean that, um, um, but by 1984, there are, there are quite a few militant councillors in Liverpool. And at the time of budget setting day, they can't, no one can actually pass a budget. So um, the militant left propose an unbalanced budget doesn't pass because the Labour right won't back it. The Liberals in Liverpool, who still have quite a sizable number, propose a cuts budget. But that refuses because the Labour Party won't side with the Liberals. So Liverpool ends up in this stalemate in 1984 where um, it can't get a budget through the council. OK, um, so within two months, there's a new set of council elections. Labour gain more seats, which actually puts the left in control in, in Liverpool's Labour group. I mean, albeit Derek Hatton is the sort of deputy at this time of, of Liberal Council. You know, it's widely acknowledged militant of the, the controlling faction in the group. Um, and crucially, despite the fact they've now got a majority, they refuse to pass a budget. They threaten to pass an unbalanced budget, but they never actually passed an unbalanced budget. Um, at this time, the miners' strike is at its peak, okay? Um, you know, it started unofficially a few months prior to this, but, you know, by May, June, it is, you know, it's at its height. It could even win at this point, you know, and, and, and Liverpool know this. The Liverpool councils know this, which is why sort of the next sort of decisive act that Liverpool Council make, you know, could be extremely destructive. And I think I'd argue that it was so destructive, July comes round and there's, you know, there's some negotiations between the government and the council and the council agrees to make a deal with the government. OK, and this would mean that they get some rate rises. Um, you know, they, they agree to some rate rises, but also the government would give them a whole bunch of money. OK, money that they can use to 
built some of the council homes that they promised. And, you know, actually, this was really quite popular. People, people were happy with them making this deal. You know, Liverpool and Hell Firm demanded more and squeezed money out of Thatcher's government in a way that no other council had managed to do, you know, just by not passing a budget. Okay, and the wider left noticed this, you know, as though Liverpool had laid out some magical blueprint that would lead to a national rebellion, which we can bring down Thatcher uh, and not actually pass on any cuts or rate rises to any, 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 any local council residents. But there's something quite crucial that's missing in all of that. And that's that during the negotiations, and this is confirmed in Hatton's memoirs, the government admits something. It says, we had to tell Patrick Jenkin, the Tory minister, to give you the money. At this stage, we want Scargill. He's our priority, but we'll come for you later. OK, the money that Liverpool won from the government was because Liverpool had not passed a budget at the same time as the peak of the miners' strike. OK, Thatcher was happy to appease Liverpool's militants if it meant they could focus on beating the miners instead. She didn't basically she didn't want a war on two fronts in which she had to fight the miners here and Scargill, uh, Liverpool Council and Hatton here. So, you know, nevertheless, the left cap rate councils thought that there could be a way out, a way to not pass cuts and beat Thatcher. You know, later that year, the left in local government held a conference. They proposed a rebellion, the rate cap and rebellion, whereby, you know, 15 councils uh, pledged the same strategy that Liverpool uh, did in 1984, that none of them would pass a budget and threaten unbalanced budgets as a way of draining concessions out of the government. But within months, as we all know, the minor strike comes to a historic defeat. OK, the minor strike's no longer there. And the Rates Act, which I mentioned earlier, that Thatcher had passed, actually means that if you don't pass a budget, you're uh, open to legal surcharge as a council and legal threats start coming in. So you've got 15 councils in December 84 that are like we're going to do what Liverpool did. And one by one. All of them fall. They all begin to back down because they're getting legal threats come to. We're going we're gonna to charge you for this. You know, we, you, you can't do this, basically. It's illegal. So they might have had a chance if they stuck together, but they didn't. Uh, by June, basically all but two remain. Lambeth Council and Liverpool Council, and both of those adopt different strategies at this point. Lambeth actually hold out the longest. They hold out till July, but they pass a legal budget. Um, and every council that's involved in this in Lambeth ends up being surcharged and barred from office. Something slightly different happens in Liverpool and the struggle goes on a bit longer. And that's that Liverpool will end up passing an unbalanced budget in June like they threatened to do. Um, but at this point, you know, you might have expected those councils to be calling for mass demonstrations, strikes in support. But that wasn't the case. You know, they made a tactical decision to not do that despite them happening in the previous year, by the way. And, and ultimately, this inaction costs them. Um, the unbalanced budget actually cannot last until the end of the year. They don't have enough money in the bank. So by mid-September, uh, the council issues 90-day redundancy notices to all of its staff, right? Do you imagine a worse way to drive a wedge between yourself and the local labour movement than threatening um, all of your staff with redundancy notices? This goes as badly as you can imagine. The NALGO go on strike for a day. The NUT take the council to court. And the council's response is like, oh, you know, it's not us. This is just a tactic. Um, but because they hadn't been like uh, central to this fight, they hadn't been calling people out. When they turn around and say we're calling for a general strike, it loses, you know, 47-53 on the vote and ultimately, um, you know, is, is defeated. So no general strike, but also, you know, they're in this position where they've got to start balancing the books, you know, in their view. 
Um, you know, eventually in November, they get they find a plan. Money was found. They're going to borrow it from somewhere else. They'd actually made cuts in this time because um, because of the dispute had been because of the way the dispute had been going on. They've been turning the heating off and things like that, and they'd not been replacing um, stationery. But they were passing cuts. Um, they also agreed to borrow some money from a Swiss bank. Um, you know, a deal that was made months previous to this. So despite the rhetoric of you know calling an all-out strike, they'd actually agreed to borrow money from uh, from a Swiss bank. Um, so we're in this position now where um, they, they 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 pass a budget. Um, but by 1986, the same period comes around again, and Liverpool, sure enough, like everyone else, pass a cuts budget. The councillors are all still surcharged, many disqualified, and this leads to the expulsions of many prominent militant activists. So after all that, where success could have been in Thatcher, the left crumbles, okay? And there hasn't been a, a struggle in local government on this scale since. Look, there, there are many lessons from the dispute, um, and I don't want to go into them all because I think it's better to have, have that in discussion, but it seems key that, you know, a leadership that was rooted in class struggle could have resulted in victory. You know, it could have even toppled Thatcher. You know, the left were organised, they were speaking, they were holding conferences. Industrial struggle was live, but like soon after that, it's gone. And, it, and it's gone in a, in a very permanent way. You know, instead, 87, under Kinnock, Labour make no, like I mean, pitiful gains in the general election. Thatcher remains in office, goes on to introduce the poll tax. You know, I think that's beyond the scope of this talk. Um, it's worth an entire talk in its own right. Um, but, um, you know, this decade of, of defeat, basically, uh, is the result of, of not fighting hard enough. Um, and, and defeats that, that are our defeats, okay? Um, I think before I want to say something briefly about the modern era, um, I think it's worth just saying, you know, the poll tax is defeated quite, quite quickly over a number of, over a couple of years. Thatcher goes, Major comes in, um, NALGO, NUPE, um, COHSE, which is a, a health services union, form Unison. Um, and then in 97, um, Blair comes in. And I kind of call this like the, the, the making of the next period. Right? And, you know, Blair doesn't want to wage industrial struggle. Blair doesn't want to see strikes. He's not going to undo Thatcher's anti-union laws. He will fund local government schools in the NHS, but this is going to cost us structurally. There's going to be outsourcing. We're not going to win big pay rises. We will start to see the, the wholesale privatisation of the NHS and education. And we're going to be left in a position where the Tories and the Dems, when they come in in 2010, just smash our class even further. So I put these three pictures up because I think they... They exemplify these aspects of Blair's regime um, and its aftermath. Um, you know, the top one is 2002 firefighter strike. They went and strike over pay. This culminates two years later in the FBU disaffiliating with the Labour Party over, you know, disagreements in policy. And no doubt this dispute had a big handle in that. Um, the bottom left is a local strike in Stevenage. You can see me in the bottom left of the picture, actually. Um, which was a, a struggle against academization. You know, academization began under Blair. Um, and then on the lower right, the 2011 public sector pension dispute, um, which involved Unison, PCS, UCU, others. Um, but ultimately, um, the legacy of Blair, you know, goes on to for, you know, are, are, the, are these things entirely, these struggles that we still have to keep facing, 
Cameron wins the 2015 election, you know, introduced Trade Union Act. And, you know, we're not we haven't seen any big public sector strikes in the way that we have in 2011 since then. Basically, what my point being, Blair could have ripped up those union laws and kept them in place. And the industrial terrain on which we are now fighting is not just Thatcher's, it's not just Cameron's, but it's Blair's too. So again, I guess I want to finish here. And, and that's where we are now. Corbyn was elected in 2015, and that could have uh, began a big wave of mass struggle against cuts uh, in local government and elsewhere. And, and, and you know, it should have been. Um, lefties have been and still are being selected to be councillors, you know, all over. I, I'm an example of that. Um, but, you know, one of the rules uh, for local councillors means you can't vote against uh, cuts. You, say you can't vote against legal budgets, otherwise you get suspended. There was no struggle against that in the last five years under Corbyn. In fact, I'm pretty sure it even came in under him. You know, Momentum has its own councillors network. You know, the question is, like, where are they? Earlier this year, Socialist Campaign Group of Labour councillors formed. You know, both of these must have, like, central role, surely, of coordinating the left in local government, particularly the councillors. But, but so far, they haven't culminated in any form of, like, major rebirth, ma major revival of, of, um, of, of lefty councillors. So, um, you know, the response to the Labour movement has not been groundbreaking, right? Even under C Corbyn, industrial struggle, industrial militancy falls, memberships down further, there's less strikes, there's less reps, less branches. You know, I don't think it's all their fault, right? Corbyn and McDonald both attended picket lines, they got behind the junior doctors in 2016, told MPs that was their job. But I don't think it's fair to let this moment pass without saying that the position Corbyn found himself in, he shouldn't have just been telling supporters, you know, become Labour Council reps, to become MPs, but to become class struggle fighters, okay? Now, as said earlier, and I think this is, this is probably like the most crucial aspect of the talk, the victories of the past and the defeats were founded on the strength of the industrial labour movement, right? And, and, and that as much as true if it's, you know, a victory or a defeat. And, you know, there's no corner cutting either. Preston model is not socialism. The Preston model is local insourcing and private partnerships. You know, in London, we've got um, a momentum council. So it councils the Harringay development vehicle, but it's still, you know, not stopping the demolition of the Latin village. Uh, we've got a we've, we've got a strike in Tower Hamlets at the moment, a strike which has been suspended. You know, you've got councils in support of that, but you know, this this dispute is slowly fizzling out. Okay, we can't let that. Um, Unison are electing a new general secretary. You know, there's an argument that a class struggle fighter could win this and help inspire a fight back in local government. But that, you know, so, so that person has to win. Okay. COVID. I've, I've given a talk on this elsewhere and I, I point people to that to, to go into the sort of the numbers and where this is, how, how we've arrived at this. But you've got 10 or 20 billion pounds of cuts in local government on the horizon, you know, this surely must produce some further struggle, but at the moment it doesn't seem to be reviving any, you know, you've, we've got these networks and, and, and we've, we've got lots of lefty councillors, but you know, how many of them are talking about fighting capitalism? How many of them are, are, are talking about defying the government in the way that, you know, Clay Cross did, even in the way that, albeit landed in defeat, the, the, the left in the eighties did. So I think the answer now, right, is, you know, as it always has been, and that's without a fight, we're, we're never going to win. We'll always lose. And every one of these examples um, provides an opportunity to wage a class struggle, to fight back and actually win. You know, the surcharges are gone. 
uh, the disqualifications are gone. And I think it's about time that we had our generation of Clay Cross. 